Gaza is going to be tough, and you know he's got a he's got a very seasoned military, but they just called up 300,000 reservists, most of whom probably can't fire a rifle, and to the extent they'd be put in harm's way, it's going to be awfully difficult on the prime minister. But he's got to do what he's got to do. He's uh, you're dealing with cold-blooded killers, and you can make all kinds of excuses why they are, but they are. And his job is to protect this protect this country. And uh, anyway, we'll find out what he's made out of. People who are calling for a ceasefire now do not understand Hamas. That is not possible. It would be such a gift to Hamas because they would spend whatever time there was a ceasefire in effect rebuilding their uh, armaments, you know, creating stronger positions to be able to fend off uh, an eventual um, assault by the Israelis. Now, before we go, earlier on BBC News, we reported on some of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations at the weekend. We spoke about several demonstrations across Britain during which people voiced their backing for Hamas. We accept that this was poorly phrased and was a misleading description of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations. Now here's the weather. Oh boy, am I late. I'm so late. Uh, forgive me, dear listener, for my tardiness. Although, you're really getting what you pay for here, which is, I, I think Alex, my friend Alex gave me five bucks once, but uh, yeah, I've had a really hard time doing this episode for a number of reasons. Some are personal. I feel very locked up, uh, both in my body and my mind, and so putting myself in the right headspace to record this episode, which I've been thinking about nonstop for the past month now, has been very difficult. Um, and isn't that like a Jew? Isn't it such a Jew thing to do to, to make this about me somehow? Because that's what we're seeing. Uh, <laughs> all these people making one of the worst conflicts of our lifetimes uh, about themselves and how they're suffering. I'm not suffering or any more than usual. This week's episode was supposed to feature my interview with Brother Arnold. Uh, he is a shaker, which is a Protestant monastic church outside of Portland, Maine. Brother Arnold's uh might be a holy man, and our conversation was about truth, because I feel that he is tapped into it. The shakers are an impressive bunch, uh, to be a shaker, you can't just put it in your, you know, your resume or your CV or whatever. You have to uh, be credentialed. You you have to be inducted and you have to take a vow of poverty, a vow of celibacy, and a vow of selflessness. Um, it's also, I think, the only church in America that pays taxes. So uh, I'm a big fan of Brother Arnold and the Shakers. And while I think Brother Arnold uh, has some great perspective on what truth is. I did not want to involve him in this conversation. Uh, I, he, he did not share his thoughts, uh, when I interviewed him and I don't want to associate him with my ramblings about one of the more contentious issues of our time. So, uh, I will be publishing the brother Arnold piece a little bit later this week. This episode, this solo episode, because nobody's on it, just me, uh, is also about truth. Because uh, I feel like nobody knows what to believe right now. Although I think in our in your core, you should know. I think intuitively, you don't need the news to tell you what's going on and, and what's right and what's wrong. Um, Everyone says or wants to think this is, oh, it's complicated. This is complicated. It's not. Um, it's not complicated. 
a lot of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict right now uh, is a debate over what's true and what's not. Uh, I think that it's it's interesting watching war happen in real time and to try to make sense of the propaganda that, that both sides have. I mean, you know, it is in the interest of both sides to win uh, the hearts and minds, I guess you could say, or just the uh, regard of one side or another, because uh, in the the international community's opinion about this conflict does seem to matter greatly. On October 17th, a bomb or an explosion of some kind, they say, uh, struck the El Alhi uh, Arab Hospital in Gaza City. Uh, and you had this seesawing of the news. Uh, who was culpable? Who was to blame? First, it was Israel, obviously. You know, they had warned the hospital uh, just days before that they were going to bomb it. They said to the doctors there, evacuate. The doctors did not evacuate because uh, they're fucking heroes and they would not leave people behind. Um, Israel did bomb the place a couple weeks prior, but without, I think, any incendiaries um, on the missiles. So you have what seems clearly enough uh, an Israeli attack on a hospital. Well, not so fast. Apparently, uh, according to some footage or other uh, from, uh, you know, Western outlets, the bomb was a Hamas rocket that uh, misfired uh, and killed something like 500 people, although even that number is disputed. And then you had this back and forth using different experts, either like weapons experts or like physicists triangulating stuff or, you know, whatever. The Wall Street Journal says this, the New York Times says that. And you have this back and forth for weeks. To this day, it's, it's still disputed over who was responsible for bombing a hospital. Now, uh, whether or not Hamas accidentally bombed uh, the El Alhi uh, Arab uh, hospital, since then, while everybody was debating who bombed it, uh, they bombed a shit ton of other hospitals and schools and refugee camps. So it seems kind of like a moot point to argue over, um, but it still manages to be uh, a, a very contentious point and something used as evidence of the evil of uh, one side or another. In turn, you had stories uh, from Israel saying that Hamas had, and, and also don't say Hamas if you're going to talk about it. Uh, that's how uh, Israelis pronounce Hamas. Um, just a telltale sign there, uh, which who you're listening to, I guess. Uh, that Hamas uh, had beheaded uh, 40 babies. Do you remember that? Seeing that everywhere? <laughs> this this claim that 40 babies were beheaded. And uh, that turned out not to be true. You also had uh, a baby that was put in an oven, uh, also found not to be true. I, I think there's a pattern uh, with a lot of stuff coming out of Israel that uh, don't believe what they say. Uh Here's uh, CNN's Fareed Zakaria saying openly that um, whatever information they get or, uh, or, or get through uh, and report on, Israel has to basically go through, has to be okayed, greenlit by Israel. Gaza. Yesterday, CNN's Jeremy Diamond went into Gaza on an IDF embed. I should note that journalists embedded with the IDF in Gaza operate under the observation of Israeli commanders in the field and are not permitted to move unaccompanied within the Gaza Strip. As a condition to enter Gaza under IDF escort, outlets have to submit all materials and footage to the Israeli military for review prior to publication. CNN has agreed to these terms in order to provide a limited window into Israel's operations in Gaza. Jeremy joins me now. Now, I'm not disputing the fact that Hamas uh, has committed 
uh, atrocities and murdered people. I have not seen the video, the GoPro footage of the October 7th attacks myself. I actively avoid seeing death. I, I don't think it's good for you, and I would recommend you don't do it either. Uh, I remember when the whole ISIS beheading videos were all over you know, the message boards on things like 4chan. Um, I, I, I never saw them, and I never want to. I, I don't think it's good for you. I don't think it does you any good to see it. Uh, so I have not personally seen the uh, Hamas attacks of October 7th. Uh, I've read reports, and you know I'm going to choose to accept some of the reporting from uh, veritable sources that, uh, yeah, Hamas murdered civilians in kibbutzes. Um, although, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, uh, even that event itself is kind of bizarre, and the truth of what happened there is constantly evolving. But, so what you see, uh, and I, I would recommend against, is any sort of celebration of violence. Uh, I think that the initial uh, October 7th attack could have been interpreted as a slave revolt, as the great Professor Norman Finkelstein calls it. And you could see it as an act of resistance, of rebellion. But when you start to see certain acts of violence, it's it's harder to feel good about it. So, yeah, don't don't celebrate violence. I guess I, I don't I don't know how to I don't I don't listen to me. I I don't know. But we still are choosing to believe in one thing or another, and this whole thing, we're we're mostly watching all watching the same thing, and. What this is reminding me of is the blue dress. Do y'all y'all remember that the blue dress, uh, the most popular? I, I don't know if you'd call it a meme, but viral internet phenomenon of 2015. It was that poor quality image of a dress that was either blue or black or white and gold. That darn dress, you know the one I'm talking about. It's been inescapable today, dividing the world between those who see white and gold and those who see blue and black. So tonight, we went in search of answers. When you can't believe your eyes, what can you believe? And everybody was like, oh my God, like I see this. How can you possibly see that? And no matter what someone told you the dress was, uh, you only could see it your way. And I think that a lot of people see the Israeli-Palestinian conflict like that right now. Of course, there is one truth to what color the dress actually was, and it was black and blue. Uh, but uh, no matter what you told or how you once you told someone, no, this is literally black and blue, they still saw white and gold. Um, and I think that a lot of people are guilty of this right now, of being incapable of seeing what, what color things really are. And it, it, it's very disappointing. Um, and it's particularly disappointing, and it's always felt this way for me, uh, with Jews. Uh, I myself am Jewish-ish. Uh, I've talked about this before on previous episodes. I am what you would call a silver Jew. That means that I am patrilineally Jewish, and therefore uh, the most Jewish Jew because I'm not even accepted by my own people. But that seems to be the running theme now. I mean, we're seeing this a lot, where uh, if you are an anti-Zionist, you are an anti-Semite. And in fact, that means you're not Jewish at all. So we'll see how much longer I'm, uh, I qualify as a Jew. But I went to Israel in 2014 and I did I did birthright uh, my my friend Sam his brother Max was a rabid Palestinian activist and he was so worried that I would be convinced somehow uh, on this trip it was kind of condescending but um, Max is a true believer and I respect him immensely for that and he stayed true to the cause uh, his whole life it seems uh, even now 
And so I went to Israel with a already with my my politics already more or less decided on like that Israel was mostly bad. Um, I will say since then my politics have changed more, and Israel is worse than I even realized then. Uh, but on that trip, and I, I talk about it, uh, I mean, birthright was awful propaganda, obviously. Um, I think it was like 10 days, and I don't think we, they said the word Palestine until I brought it up. And I was like, what's what's on the other side of that massive concrete, like, militarized wall? Uh, and never did I feel less Jewish in my life than when I was in Israel. Uh, I did not relate to that kind of Jewishness whatsoever. And uh, I, I I didn't think they were very funny. Uh, there wasn't like a, it was very heavy there. There was, uh, it was belligerent. It felt like it was very serious. It didn't feel like the kind of Seinfeldian New York Jewish concept I, I had grown up with. So, you know, I, I felt even less Jewish and less connected to that place. And I don't feel like it's my homeland or anything like that. I, I walked up to the Wailing Wall in great anticipation. This wall that people pray for, you know, like it's got to have some energy in it, right? I walked up to that wall. I put my forehead to it. It's just cold rock. It's just a wall. And even though I could see how wrong Zionism and the state of Israel was, I still in my heart felt like there was something special about being Jewish. I remember one time with that same friend Sam, who's also Jewish, we were watching the Coen Brothers movie A Serious Man Cy Abelman? Uh, with my then Persian girlfriend, uh, Bella. And... Sam and I are just cracking up. We find this movie to be uh, incredibly funny. And Bella, like near the end of the movie, just looks at us and angrily says, what's so funny? And although I felt disconnected from my girlfriend at that point, I felt really connected to an idea of being Jewish. I was like, oh, you're not Jewish. You don't get it. And it felt kind of special. Like it was a it made me unique somehow or gave me a sense of belonging. And even my sense of Jewishness was born of not like going to temple or any sort of ritual. You know, I'm a through and through secular Jew, I'm not bar mitzvah, not circumcised, <laughs> uh, a lot of things. Uh, but I recall one time, and forgive me if you've heard me tell this story before, uh, I was with my father in his green Ford truck. My dad is a big shopper, Jewish, and uh, we were going to uh, a garage sale. And it was a very common thing for my father to leave me in the truck running with the radio on so that he could go uh, shop unbothered. And usually he'd take, you know, anywhere between, well, when I was like eight years old, it felt like forever, but probably just like 10 to 20 minutes. So he comes back really fast, and I could tell he was a little upset, and uh, he told me that, yeah, the guy, he said something I didn't like. And I said, oh, well, what did he say? And he said, well, I was asking him about the price of this chainsaw, and he gave me the price, and he said, and don't try and Jew me down. And I was like, well, what does that mean? I'm eight years old at the time. And my father kind of says, like, well, he, he said something against our, our people. Like, he said something racist or bigot, bigoted, prejudiced. And it was that moment that, like, the Jewishness clicked in my brain. Like, my Jewish conscious turned on. That's me. He's attacking my people. And the idea that my Jewishness was born out of victimization, I think, kind of lines up in a lot of ways with... The way that 21st century Jews see themselves. Uh, we have a narrative of victimization. And that's not just to the 21st century. Uh, every holiday is a reminder that they tried to kill us. And they almost got there, but they just barely... We got by by the skin of our teeth and by the grace of God, we survived because we are the chosen people. Uh, 
that's not a good mindset to have, I think. And I think that the ugliest parts of it are showing themselves right now. And this idea that we are entitled, that we have any, any belonging there is insane. And, you know, comparisons to being a Nazi is pretty apt. I, I hate to admit it. The idea that you are chosen, you are better than, and therefore it belongs to you. I mean, like, come on. It, it, it is supremacy. It is fucking, it is racial supremacy to a T. There's no debating that. And, you know, I, I feel for, I, I have Israeli friends. One of my closest friends, she's half Israeli, I won't say her name. But I check in with her time to time to see how she's doing because she identifies as Israeli and she told me that she's filled with shame right now. Or she's grappling with shame at least. And I can't imagine what that would feel like. I mean, I kind of can. We're Americans. We are, <laughs> in a lot of ways, not that different from Israelis. We just did it a while ago. They're just doing it now. The, the whole colonization effort. Uh... But I don't, it's hard to have sympathy right now for Israelis. And if I do have sympathy for Israelis, it's because they were tricked. I don't think that they're inherently bad people. I know plenty of fantastic Israelis. But they were duped. And you should feel bad for them in that regard. Because they were tricked by... The empire. The idea that the British would just hand over land to Jews who they hated without there being some sort of caveat, without there being strings attached. They don't give shit away out of the kindness of their hearts. There is no kindness in the empire. Jews were tricked to take over this land and to become the tip of the spear. To be the foothold in the Middle East, which is uh, important for reasons I'm sure everyone knows, but for other ones that some people probably don't know either. So in that regard, I have sympathy for the Israelis because they've been put in this impossible position. And I guess what's most disappointing is someone who has identified as a Jew for pretty much his whole life to watch other Jews behave in these shameful ways. There's this one girl I knew from New York a while back, uh, this rich Jewish girl, and uh, I follow her on Instagram, and the shit she is posting is unbelievable. Uh, I, I mean, she's she drank the Kool-Aid, but the level of, like, the lack of self-awareness is appalling. Uh, recently, she posted a a yoga class, a donation yoga class that she was hosting in her $15,000 penthouse suite in Brooklyn Heights, right by the Barclays Center. It was a $20, $25 suggested donation. 20 people would come. And all the proceeds, all the money, would be donated to the IDF. Jesus fucking Christ. Uh... Aside from the fact that that's nothing, that's no money, maybe $500 tops, which like your, your, your apartment is 15 K a month. You're incredibly rich. So it's just this performance, I suppose, but it's disgusting to me. And in, in general, I see that this behavior, this, again, this victimization, this idea that Jews can do no wrong. If you really, really want to stop anti-Semitism, you should be pro-Palestinian. Because it's not wrong. They're not. It's. I will say that a lot of Jews should be afraid right now because we look really bad. And it's making this conflict, and Israel has always done this, but this conflict in particular is making the world a more dangerous place for Jews. Also, like... The idea that 
putting all the Jews on one little strip of land is a good idea, that it's the safe thing to do. I keep making this joke that my financial advisor told me I should take all my money out of my diverse portfolio. I don't have any money in a portfolio. All my money on my diverse portfolio and put it in uh, one thing. And that's the safest place for all your money to be is in one place. Some of you, I don't know if it's a good joke or not. I don't know. I'm starting to ramble. I'll get back on track. Give me a second. We Jews have been so conditioned to see ourselves as the victims, the victims of history, that we can't imagine. We can't imagine that we would ever be the bad guy. And so I see so much delusion and denial from my fellow Jews uh, that it brings me immense shame. We Jews are phenomenal storytellers. You know, we are, we are, there's a reason why we're good at the media, or at least we were good at the media, but we are such good storytellers that we have told this story about ourselves and our history, especially in the 20th century, and we forgot that it's a myth, that we are not particularly good or better than anybody else. But that Jewish supremacy existed even in me. Uh, for, a, for a very long time, I thought that I was special because I was Jewish. And I got to say, I don't know if you guys have seen any of the uh, Jewish SNL satire that's come out. I'll play a clip here and you'll see just how bad it really is. Hi everyone, we are live on YouTube with Columbia Antisemity News, where everyone is welcome. LGBTQH. H. Hamas. Yeah, I totally sim Hamas. Yeah. It's so trending right now. From the, the river, river to, to the, the sea, Palestine, Palestine will be free. free. Do you know why it's true? Mm. Because it rhymes. Oh. <laughs> Just look at all this toxic Zionist propaganda. Kidnapped in Gaza. Does this look like Gaza to you? Yeah, but I have no idea what Gaza looks like. And they're smiling. Do hostages smile? Zionist liars. Totally sus. Do they think we're stupid? Stupid? I major in queer post-colonial astrology. Ew. Jews make the world dirty. Yeah. And no, I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm racist fluid. Exactly. And now for a little break from all this activism, we want to say hello to our BFF. Bestie freedom fighter. Abu Fatwa in Gaza. Salam alaikum. Alaikum assalam. And inshallah, Allah will kill you all infidels. Another reason why we're not Jewish anymore, we're losing our Jewishness through this conflict is because that is not funny. The writing, the script writing is really bad. Um, you know, we Jews lived most of our lives, our, our, our culture's existence lived with, we were without a homeland. We didn't have a homeland. We were without a homeland far longer than we had one. So it is in fact more Jewish to be wander, to be wanderers to be uprooted, to be global citizens. That is the most Jewish thing you can be. Having a homeland turns us into bloodthirsty Protestants. And it's no coincidence that the people who support the Zionist project, the ones who give the most money and the most political support, are evangelicals. So... Modern Jews are really no different than Protestants these days. Chances are by now you've heard about the utter tragedy happening in Israel. As a God-fearing, Bible-reading, second return of Christ-believing Christian, I can unequivocally without a doubt say that as for me and my house, we stand with Israel. God's word holds a timeless promise in Genesis 12:3. It says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Israel is under attack because the surrounding countries see her as a threat. Because Israel serves as a constant reminder that the King of Kings is who he says he is and that one day every lesser god will bow to him 
If Hamas were to lay down and retract their weapons, there would be peace. If Israel retracted her weapons, her land would be no more. Whether you're a Christian or not, we can all agree that this is barbaric and an absolute tragedy. More Jews were killed on Saturday's planned attack than in any single day since the end of the Holocaust. And if that doesn't break your heart, I don't know what will. As Christians, we have a spiritual connection to Israel because of the God we love, live for, and serve. Pray for Israel and pray that the Lord will do what he does best. So what can you do? Um, well, give money, obviously, and uh, I'll put some links to some organizations you can donate to that I think are safe and, and uh, trustworthy. The other thing you can do is just talk about it, post about it. I know that sounds crazy and self-serving because that's what I'm doing. Um, posting a little, a little too hard about it, maybe. Uh, and I understand people's reluctance to put stuff out there, largely because of the kind of blowback you might get from friends and uh, family and from your job. And that's precisely why you should do it, because this is completely different than Black Lives Matter. And if you have a sort of hangover or if you became cynical because BLM turned out to be a total sham, um, I get it. I'm right there with you. I feel the same way. You know, the second that you saw like hashtag BLM on Amazon.com, when you saw Mitt Romney, Mitt fucking Romney, marching in a BLM protest, uh, you knew it was, it was nothing. It, didn't, it wouldn't do anything. It wouldn't change anything. Uh, that's because it didn't threaten anybody. This threatens people. There's a reason why Rashida Tlaib, the congresswoman from Michigan, just got censored. There's a reason why nobody is willing to even say the word ceasefire. Fucking Bernie Sanders. I will never wear my Bernie Sanders shirt or hat ever again. I cannot believe how betrayed I feel by him. Uh, this is dangerous. And that's precisely why it's effective. If it was meaningless, if, if it didn't do anything, then it wouldn't threaten you, even in the smallest ways. People are losing their jobs over this shit. Even in Florida, I'm going to bring it to Florida. Here, you ready? I got, I got the Florida thing for you guys. So like Rashida Taleb, Democratic State Representative Angie Nixon here in Florida introduced a bill into the Florida legislature, H.R. 31C. It was a resolution calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. And not that a state rep could do anything. It's largely symbolic. I don't know what a Florida state rep could possibly do overseas but she was completely condemned by even her own party in the state of Florida. They called her an anti-Semite. Uh, people turned her back on her. Uh, people turned their backs on her when she spoke at the dais. And she's being completely reasonable. She said, many of my colleagues have stated that folks are fearful of another massacre occurring to the Jewish people. Well, guess what? A massacre is occurring now. Entire bloodlines of Palestinians have been wiped away. They are gone. And both Democrats and Republicans faced away from her while she was speaking. And she says, she said to them, you can turn your backs on me, but I am on the right side of history because I don't want the babies to die. This resolution was filed on behalf of my constituents. My community wanted me to humanize the victims that are suffering abroad. And she is on the right side of history. She continued her closing marks by saying, My colleagues have said they will not give up the fight. We are at 10,000 dead Palestinians. How many will be enough? After she said that, after she asked that rhetorical question, how many will be enough? A male voice from within the house shouted, all of them. Nobody knows who it was. He's a fucking coward. Would say something like that and then hide in anonymity. But he said all of them. And someone who calls her a ceasefire gets censured and gets called an anti-Semite. It's 
absolutely fucking astounding that this that, that people would behave like this and think it's fucking normal think it's somehow reasonable Ron DeSantis to I gotta do more Florida stuff Ron DeSantis himself has tried to capitalize on this political event and he hired some buddy who owned a private jet company to fly out uh, Israeli citizens with dual citizenship which by the way a lot of Israelis have two passports so uh, that's kind of interesting right uh, he spent 50 million dollars of our taxpayer money to bring over US citizens who were living abroad in Israel uh, and I think he gave he gave he, he was selling a t-shirt on his uh, website that said uh, air DeSantis I think for 25 bucks you could you can get one it's pretty bad but this is different this is different than your normal protests your normal people expressing themselves I've people have, have called this virtue signaling to to post about it it's not because you can get in trouble for it and that's the difference and what you are doing is countering what up to this point had been a kind of ambiently accepted propaganda on behalf of Israel you can take solace and knowing that it's falling apart. Israel's propaganda stranglehold on not just the American imagination, but the whole world, as tenuous as it was, is in worse shape now. I really don't see how Israel makes it out of this. Uh, I don't think that it's possible. <laughs> Joe Biden called the October 7th attacks, the equivalent of, I think, uh, 14 or 15 9-11s. He did some weird math there. Uh, and a lot of uh, Israeli propagandists uh, have tried to invoke 9-11. Uh, and they're saying it in English. Remember, when Israelis don't speak English, right? Or some, some, a lot of them do, but they speak Hebrew. And so when you see an Israeli get in front of a microphone and speak in English, he is speaking to you. And so when they talk about 9-11, they are trying to connect with you. And be like, remember? Remember when you guys got attacked and you decided to invade an entire region and killed millions of people? But that was for your safety. It was justified, right? Remember? Well, comparing it to 9-11 is incredibly appropriate. <laughs> um, not only because, you know, it is a bad idea to react in, venge in vengeance the way that Israel's doing. Uh, because it didn't really work out very well for us, if you guys recall. Uh, you know, invading another country, an Arab Muslim country, uh, in, in spite of our technological and military and economic supremacy, we didn't really win. But the other way that it is incredibly appropriate to call the October 7th attacks, 9-11, uh, indulge me here, it's not what they told you it was the more information that comes out about the october 7th attacks and what really happened that day how it was allowed to happen remember gaza is one of is is the most surveilled place in the world israel is the premier surveillance state uh in the world Israel is known for its surveillance technology. People buy billions of dollars worth of their software and whatever. Every inch of Gaza is mic'd up, filmed. They know what's going on for the most part. Or at least they thought they did. 
Now, Egypt, I think 10 days prior to the October 7th attacks, reached out to the Netanyahu government and said, hey, there's some weird stuff going on. There's some movement. And we, in our secret intelligence service, has like picked up on some chatter that something's going to happen. Netanyahu ignored it. First of first, when Egypt came out and said, hey, we warned them, Netanyahu denied it, said that never happened, they never talked to us. And then they backtracked and said, okay, yeah, they did talk to us, but, you know, whatever. Uh, they're Egyptians. So not only were they forewarned, not only was this the most surveilled place on Earth that is hyper-militarized, there's some other weird shit that went down. And it's largely speculative, and I know I'm not doing my due diligence here, but it came out recently that the music festival that was located right next to the concentration camp, which, by the way, a fucking festival next to a concentration camp. Let that sink in. There's a movie coming out, a Jonathan Glazer movie, same guy who did Under the Skin and Sexy Beast, uh, called Zone of Inclusion. And it's about a SS commander who moved his family into an idyllic little home right next door to Auschwitz. Pretty good timing there, too. But people are going to miss the fucking message of that. You better believe it. The music festival wasn't supposed to happen there. They moved it at the last minute. On top of that, what we're finding out about the attacks themselves is that while, yes, Hamas did commit atrocities, many of those people died in crossfire between the IDF and Hamas. They wanted a lot more hostages, but the Israeli military murdered everybody. And more and more information is going to come out about that, I promise you. So, it's more like 9-11 than, than you even realize. But do not despair. It feels crazy. It looks awful. Um, when I have, when I see videos of shaking children who are covered in the dust of missiles, um, it's hard not to to just sob uh, and feel helpless. Um, but do not despair. You don't get to despair, uh, because the people in Gaza, the people in Palestine, um, they remain strong and they are close to God. I mean, they are godly people there. And I'm going to leave you, uh, with a, a great story told by a, an American nurse who worked for Doctors Without Borders who was in Gaza uh, during the bombing, and she was protected by uh, her Palestinian colleagues who knew they were staying to die. Um, it's a really heartrending story, so please uh, listen to the whole thing. And um, I'll talk to you guys later this week. This is a video of the aftermath of a strike in the Al-Shati refugee camp in Gaza. According to journalists working for CNN, the attack came during intense Israeli bombardment, a bombing Sunday night. The IDF has not commented on the incident. United Nations officials today said 70 percent of people in the Gaza Strip are displaced, many in living, in living in conditions, a statement called, quote, inhumane. The Secretary General said the Gaza is becoming a, quote, graveyard for children. Israel's ambassador to the UN uh, lashed out at those at the comments, called for the Secretary General's resignation. Emily Callie Callahan is a nurse, activity manager for Doctors Without Borders, uh, MSF. She was evacuated last Wednesday and arrived back in the U.S. just over the weekend. First of all, how does it feel to be out? A lot of people keep asking me that, yeah. um, and I really don't have a good answer. Um, I obviously have a sense of relief that I'm home and I'm with my family and feel safe for the first time in 26 days. And I'm having a really hard time finding any joy in any of it um, because me being safe is the result of having to leave people behind. 
people watching this have seen images from Gaza. They've seen the hospital images. They've seen the horror of children dead day after day after day after day. I mean, they've seen all the images. But to actually be there and to experience it, you're experiencing all these things which a camera can never capture. So could you just talk a little bit about what stand, when you close your eyes at night, what is it you think about now? I think the answer to that question, I think I, I'll start at KYTC, which was we were, we were relocated about five times over the course of 26 days due to security concerns. And one of the places we wound up was the Khan Yunis Training Center. We call it KYTC. That's when people had evacuated to the south. So you were in the south of yes, Gaza at that Yes, when we point. went to Wadi, below Wadi Gaza line. And there were, by the time we left there, there were 35,000 internally displaced people living alongside us. There were children with just massive burns down their faces, down their necks, all over their limbs. And because the hospitals are so overwhelmed, they are being discharged immediately after. And they're being discharged to these camps with no access to running water. There's 50,000 people at that camp now in four toilets. They're given two hours of water every 12 hours. There's and four toilets for 50,000 people. Yes. Um, and that's where we were living too. And they have these fresh open burns and wounds and partial amputations that are just walking around these conditions. And parents are bringing their children to us going, please, can you help? Please, can you help? And we have no supplies. When in situations where there are tens of thousands of people and it is a war and people don't, can't feed their kids, things get strange very fast and things get tough very, very fast and people turn on each other. You saw that up close. Um, at KYTC, we were, the reason we had to leave was because we were starting to be harassed. Um, people, desperate people who are losing loved ones right and left are angry. And they would point at me and scream American walking past. And at that point, we had no idea what was coming in the next few days. and. Uh, they would yell things in Hebrew to see if we were Israeli. Um, they accused our national staff of either being traitors or said, you're, you're pretending to be Arab. We know that you're just pretending to be Arab. Stop lying to us. And our staff had to defend themselves. And we said to them over and over again, you don't have to stay. We understand if you want to leave us. And they said, you are family too, and we're not going anywhere. Your staff, the, the Palestinians who work for MSF or Doctors Without Borders, were concerned about your safety. We would have died within a week without them. Um, they, they are the only reason we are alive. It's incredible that this took so long to get Americans, sick people, start to move through that Rafah border crossing. It's It's... Inexplicable and we were desperate. We we did a calorie count at one point based on our supplies and figured out that if all of us, there's 50 people with us living in a parking lot now, only ate 700 calories a day. If that's all we had, we had two days of food left and that's it. And our national staff took off. We had no cell service at that point, so we had no idea what had happened to them. There's bombs going off all around us because there's no safe place in Gaza. Even getting through that Rafa border crossing, what was that like? They didn't leave our side for a second. You're um, the national staff. The national because staff. Because they feared for your safety, even at the border crossing. They made sure they were standing between us and desperate people. They made sure that they were talking to every official that they could find, trying to push us through, trying to get us on the bus, trying to get us out. And we're standing there and we're watching these incredible men who have sacrificed everything for us, who have sacrificed time with their families, their own physical safety, their own water supply they were giving to us and we're watching them fight to get us across the border knowing that we were not bringing them with us. And they didn't, they didn't waver. Um, Ibrahim was right in the front with our passports fighting so hard to get us on and we get to Arish that night and find out his parents are dead. They were losing family members and friends. You, you said if, if it wasn't for your national staff, you think you would have been killed mm -hmm. by people who were just desperate. We either would have starved to death or run out of water. They were the ones that negotiated all of that. They, Gaza is a small city, so everyone knows everyone. And they would call in favors and call their friends and say, who do you know that has food? Who do you know that's open? Where can we get this? And they would drive all over the place to find water. 
And when we ran out of bottled water in Gaza, they were the ones that were able to figure out that the water truck was coming here at these times. And, oh, I know this guy has a grocery store and uh, they still have power sometimes. I think I can probably get something from them. Like we, when I say we would have starved to death without them, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Um, and in the moments of absolute desperation of civilians, they were steadfast and calm and just talked to them and said, these people are also in the same boat that you are. They have no supplies. They also have no food and water. They are also sleeping outside on the concrete and did it in such a beautiful way that they were able to talk them down with love and kindness. There was no violence in their heart and it calmed everyone around them down as well. Would you go back to Gaza? In a heartbeat, in an absolute heartbeat. Uh, my heart is in Gaza, it will stay in Gaza. The Palestinian people that I worked with, both our national staff in the office, as well as my staff at Indonesia Hospital were some of the most incredible people I've ever met in my life. Um, when everything went off um, and we got the notice to move south of Wadi Gaza, I was texting my, my nurses at Indonesia Hospital and I said, we, we lost a nurse weekend one. Um, he was killed when the ambulance outside the hospital was blown up. And I was texting them when we got the evacuation orders and I said, did any of you move south? Did any of you get out? Like, are any of you coming down this way? And the only answer I got was, this is our community. This is our family. These are our friends. If they're gonna kill us, we're gonna die saving as many people as we can. And I said, if I can ever have an ounce of the heart that you have, I will, I will die a happy person. They were incredible. I would like to send out a reminder that there are civilians seeking shelter there and that my doctors and nurses didn't leave out of loyalty to their community. And I know that there is an idea being pushed right now that anyone that stayed behind is going to be considered some kind of a threat. And I want to remind people that the people that stayed behind are heroes. The people that stayed behind are, are they know they're gonna die and they're choosing to stay behind anyway. You're talking about doctors, nurses in the hospital. I wake up every morning and I send out a text message and I ask, are you alive? And every night before I go to sleep, I send another message and says, are you alive? Well, Kelly, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.